This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get us started. It's uh, just after 9.30. So let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that by your word we are refashioned into the image and likeness of Jesus. And by it we are incorporated into your divine life. And so Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. I pray that as we uh, turn our attention to how we are to read it, how we are to study it, how, how we are to meditate upon it, that you would do deep work in our hearts. Refashion us, Lord. Give us a desire for you, a hunger for you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all. Look, there's food over there. I didn't say it last time and none of it got eaten. So I hope that y'all have brought your appetites with you. Um, so today um, we're in our third session of the Drama of Scripture. If any of you happen to miss either of the first two, they're on the podcast. This one will also be on the podcast if you want to go back and listen to it again, making sure I've got it recording, and I do. Uh, this time we're talking about like kind of chapter, chapter three or act three of the book, uh, The King Chooses Israel which is kind of hilarious, right? Like the first two chapters cover like three chapters of the Bible, and this is like most of it in a single chapter, which is kind of silly. Um, but it is actually the way that the drama kind of shakes out. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I'm going to cover the entire Old Testament in a single session, but we're going to do the best we can with an overview. So the first thing to remember as we're looking at the overview is to remember that when we're looking at Scripture, we're looking at a unified narrative and a single drama. And the unifying center of the scriptures is Christ. And so therefore, when we're looking at the scriptures as a whole, what we should be looking for is foreshadowings of him, just as, like, as we would look for foreshadowings of the climax in a play or a drama. As the action builds in the drama, we should expect that as we approach the climax, the themes in the story should point us forward to what the solution to the crisis is going to be, even as, though, even as that solution remains hidden until it's finally revealed. Okay. You following me so far? All right. So we find, you know, in the Old Testament, these foreshadowings in direct prophecy, of course. But the, these explicit foretellings of Christ are not the only or even the most important way the Old Testament teaches us to anticipate Christ. The most important place we find him is in the themes and the images the Old Testament gives us to understand Christ. So Paul calls these images types. The Greek word is tupas. Like, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Who remembers what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says? Don't cheat. Remember on the top of your heads? Anybody? 1 Corinthians 10? Paul's talking about baptism in the Eucharist in that context. The entry into the church through baptism and the maintenance of our faith through communion with Christ. And he says, you know, the Israelites were brought through the Red Sea and onto dry land. They were baptized into the cloud and into Moses. Remember? These things were given as examples to us, that's the language that he uses, but that word is tupas, the types through which we are to understand our own baptism and our own Eucharist, okay? So, so Paul is teaching us actually how we're meant to read the Old Testament that leads up to and is included in Jesus. Uh, the author of Hebrews uses that same word to describe the tabernacle in Hebrews 8.5. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews says about the tabernacle? These things, well, fair. Um, but but what is, how does he describe the earthly tabernacle in particular in relationship to Jesus? 
It's a copy. That's the word he uses, a copy. But that co- the word copy is also that word tupas, right? It's the same word. Um, so you translate it different in different contexts, but it means the same thing. These are things that foreshadow and point forward to Jesus, right? They help us explain who Jesus is and what his ministry is. The word tupas means things that happen in the past that point forward to and are fulfilled in what happens in Jesus, And we'll understand everything that happens in the Old Testament in this way, right? And that's based not only on these kind of illustrative passages that we see in like 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 8, but also in what Jesus says about himself. What what does Jesus say about himself in Luke chapter 24 when when he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Remember? Beginning with Moses and all the law and the prophets, he showed them how all of these things point forward to him, right? So the Old Testament is the story of Israel, but above all, it is the story of Christ. And the Old Testament gives us different lenses, as it were, to understand who Christ is, what his ministry to us is. So if we're going to understand who Jesus is, we need to think about these types as different lenses through which we can read the scripture. Like what I'm actually advocating is for you to take one of these lenses and to read through the entirety of the Old Testament with that lens, looking for that particular theme or image to emerge, and then to think about that in relationship to Jesus. So as we read through the Old Testament, we can, we can read through it each time looking for one of these different lenses. I mean, you might even think about them as kind of like plot lines or plot devices, which help us see the unity of the text as that is configured by Christ and how that plot line points forward to and is fulfilled in him. Okay, you all following me so far? All right. Now, there's a whole bunch of these types and plot lines. I mean, there's probably... Um, you know, almost an infinite number of them. There's any number of ways that we can read the scripture profitably. But I'm going to suggest three of them this morning. Temple, home, and Torah, or teaching. Okay? Temple, home, and Torah, or teaching. So each one of these themes needs to be understood as like a pattern that undergirds all of scripture. Okay? Um, It's a theme that runs through scripture, and it's configured in a very particular way. Okay? Each of, these, each of these themes runs through a pattern of creation, fall, and redemption. In other words, each of them begins with an original integrity, a way that God intends them to be in the creation, a loss of that integrity, and a deep suffering and disorientation that comes from that loss, and a restoration. And this is not like, kind of like a once-for-all kind of thing. It's a pattern that repeats itself over and over again in the, over the course of Scripture. So we see this, again, with temple. We see it with home, and we see it with... Torah or teaching, okay? So these, these are simultaneously themes that run like a thread all the way through the scriptures and themes that run in a cyclical fashion over the course of scripture. So the cycle repeats itself from Genesis to Revelation with a sense of intensifying crisis that climaxes in the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So why have I suggested these themes rather than other themes? I think the reason that we should focus on these themes preeminently is because uh, they, re- they relate intimately to the offices that Christ bears on our behalf. Christ is our substitute. He bears our humanity on our behalf, right? Christ doesn't just die a vicarious death for us. He lives a vicarious life for us. His humanity is vicarious. Do you understand what I mean by that? He lives the life that human beings were meant to live, and we're united with that life. And that's how we actually receive salvation. That's how we're internally regenerated, renewed by becoming conformed to the likeness of Christ. 
okay? These offices that Christ bear have typically been summarized in three ways. Christ is priest, he is king, and he is prophet. Who's heard that, those three kind of titles before for Christ? Prophet, priest, and king, okay? Yeah, those are typically the way that the, the offices of Christ are summarized. So each of these themes relates intimately to that threefold office of Christ. He's priest, he's king, and he's prophet for his people. We come to understand his priestliness by understanding what the temple is all about. We come to understand his kingship by looking at what is kingship for, which is actually, I'm going to make this case, that, that kingship creates the conditions of home. And we come to understand what a prophet does when we understand that without a vision, without a word from the Lord, the people perish. Okay? So, follow me so far. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Everybody grasping what I'm saying so far. Mary, Martha, yeah, go ahead. Good. So for the benefit of the podcast, I'll repeat your question. Um, so you're asking, do I think, the, do I think this was the, sort of in the mind of the Old Testament authors as they wrote, uh, or was it kind of the hand of providence that made it this way? I think it's the latter. Um, in the history of the church, to talk about the unity of Scripture, you have to talk about both the human authorship of the text, the very human conditions within which it was created, so you understand the, under, you understand the original context of it, and you have to understand the, the divine authorship of the text, which weaves these texts that were written in disparate places by different authors together in a single coherent narrative that climaxes in and has its source and foundation in Christ. Okay? So I think it's the latter point. It's, it's the fact that it's divinely authored as well as humanly authored. You know, and it's in parallel, actually, with the incarnation of Jesus, right? Divine and human realities converging. Um, okay, so let's start with the temple. Okay, so... And again, i got to reiterate that our discussion will by necessity be broad brush, but I'm kind of giving this to you as a, a, promissory, a promissory note in a sense. My hope is actually to teach through every single book of Scripture intensively in the future. I think I've made that decision. Um, so that the questions that occur to you might be answered more concretely in relationship to each of the books of Scripture, because every book of Scripture has difficulties, right? And I, I love this, this, this idea that the fathers have, that actually the difficulties that are in Scripture have been seeded there, put there in, in seminal form, so that we might be challenged, actually, to, to figure out how does it all cohere in Christ. It's a challenge for, to a deeper immersion in Scripture and in meditation upon the mystery of Christ that we might understand him in the Scriptures. Um, so I, I do want to do that work, but right now, this is sort of an overview. Um, but of course, if any, of the que any questions, you know, come up, come up for you today, I'm happy to answer them. So just feel free to interrupt me at any point to ask your questions. Okay, so temple. A temple in the ancient world was quite simply the place where, God, where a God's presence dwells in an intensive way. Okay? The Old Testament, and particularly the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are devoted to the temple cultus, that is, the worship and sacrifice of the people of Israel. And Israel's sacrifice, we, we can immediately see, if we understand anything about the ancient Near Eastern context, Israel's sacrifice and its worship is set apart, in other words, True religion is set apart from false religion by its deeply ethical and anti-idolatrous character. Okay? So if you look at the way Israel's temple is structured, formally it's identical to any other temple in the ancient Near East. But what differentiates it are the particulars. Okay? So if you walk into the Holy of Holies, like what do you see? Remember what's in the Holy of Holies? There's the, there's the Ark of the Covenant, right? The footstool of God, and also the top, which is the mercy seat. Yep. 
What else is in there? The Shekinah, right, the, the glory cloud comes upon that space. Yes, what else? What about the, the architecture? Yeah, well, that's outside, but yeah, that's outside the Holy of Holies. But, but what, what else is in that, specifically in the Holy of Holies? There's cherubim on, the, on either side, right? These are God's essentially heavenly steeds, okay? They're like winged, they're like winged enormous, terrifying horses, okay? But they're his angels, the cherubim. Um, what else? Anything else is in there? Sure, the sacrifices. But there's no image or statuary of God, right? Okay, so it's anti-idolatrous. Every other temple would have a statue which represented and actually was the focal point of the presence of the God that was being worshipped in that space. But Israel's, Israel's temple is designed to mock that and to say that, no, God cannot be contained or manipulated in this space. He may only be obeyed. So when, when Moses comes into the tabernacle and into that, into that Holy of Holies, it's to confer with God, to receive instruction that, the, that he might be obeyed. All right. But, but uh, so, so Israel's religion is deeply anti-idolatrous. It's also deeply ethical. It demands something of the people. And the nations that surround it on all sides are, are differentiated from that because their religions are not actually ethical religions. They're religions of sympathetic magic. Um, they're religions that are designed to manipulate the divine realm to get what human beings want, right? Um, these religions are actually... I would say forms of magic. They do not command dedication and self-restraint. So, you know, Craig, uh, Bartholomew and Goheen say this about Baal worship. It was not only great business to worship Baal, but great fun. The Baal cult operated on the principle of sympathetic magic. So in order to ensure fertility of people, animals, and crops, a person would engage in sexual intercourse with a cult prostitute, male or female, at the local Baal shrine. The purpose was to inspire Baal to act likewise on the person's behalf and thus to ensure fertility in all areas of life. So, you know, the great C.S. Lewis is often right on a lot of things. And his book, The Abolition of Man, is one of the great books of the modern period, I think 20th century even. Um, he says in that book that there's really only two ways of engaging with the world. One of them is natural law, and the other is magic. And they're differentiated in this way. Natural law requires us to deny ourselves and to conform our wills to the way reality actually is, while magic attempts to change the world in order to make it align with our desires. Okay? That's a critical distinction, and it undergirds, actually, the whole of biblical revelation. Ancient Near Eastern worship was, in this sense, all magic, because the point was to propitiate the gods so that they would do what you wanted them to do. And, and in this sense, Israel's religion was also truly a form of natural law, right? The worship of Israel was designed to change the worshiper so that the worshiper would become a wise person conformed to the precepts of God. And all of Israel's teaching is related to this, right? So if you look at Proverbs chapter 8, it talks about the creation itself being embedded with wisdom, like wisdom is sedimented in the creation, so that to conform with the creation and God's precepts embedded in the creation is to live wisely. So it says this in verse 22, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning, when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. 
when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. So wisdom is embedded in the creation itself, and the whole structure of Israel's religion is designed to be formation in the way of wisdom. Because to follow the path of wisdom is to choose life, but to follow the way of foolishness is to choose death. And that's the message of all of Scripture, and it also means that the true worship of God means not only to ascribe praise and honor to Him with our lips, but to conform our lives to His precepts. So the law books, right, the Torah, they're also wisdom literature. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But they're books that describe what it means to live well and to flourish. When Moses gives the law, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you, what? Life and death. Blessings and curses. Now choose life, that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel's religion is a wisdom religion. It's an ethical religion. It's natural law, not magic. Okay? So the Canaanite deities, which are, which are, which are really the, the religions that Israel's true religion is, is counterpoised against, are propitiated by sympathetic magic. They're a constant source of temptation for the Israelites because they promise fulfillment without demanding anything of the people. And that means, therefore, that they are false religions, right? And again, sometimes you hear like Christianity like, uh, narrated as a relationship, not a religion, which is not true, right? It's actually not very helpful to think of it that way. It's more helpful to, to think about the Bible's categories, which are true religion versus false religion. There is a proper way of worshiping God. There is a proper way of offering sacrifice, actually. There's sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. That's the, that's the sacrifice that we're called to. Um, it is religion. It's not only religion, right? It is also relationship. But it's relationship because it's an ethical religion. It's a true religion, okay? It's not a false religion like the Canaanite religions. Um, the sacrifice that God desires of us in our worship is mercy and justice and obedience. It's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Micah chapter 6, 8 says, What sacrifice does the Lord require of you to, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? This is an ethical religion. False religions are always magic. They are ways of trying to deal with our predicament that involve no change in ourselves, but only in our circumstances. Charlie, go ahead, brother. I, excuse me. I struggle even as I approach age 70. <coughs> I hear you on the one hand. But on the other hand, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry about that. I hear scripture saying that God gives us in our prayers he wants us to express the desires of our heart. Yes. And so when I pray, a lot of times I stop because I go, am I trying to force you, God, mm. to do what I want you to do? Mm -hmm. is, this the, is this really the desire of my heart now, mm -hmm. or have I taken a step further? Mm -hmm. So I'm listening to the drama here in terms of ethical Israel. Where is that dividing line? Beautiful, Charlie. Uh, restate the question for the podcast. So Charlie says, yeah, but don't, don't the scriptures commend us to, to state the desires of our hearts to God, like to, to bring them before him? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, there's a difference. And again, this is why both Judaism and Christianity, they are relational religions. They are, right? They're not 
they're not impersonal or non-relational. God invites us into that relationship. He invites us into that relationship so that we might actually state to him the desires of our hearts. But the, but the thought should never be that we may manipulate him into giving us what we want, right? Like I love, there's a prayer attributed to John Chrysostom that appears in morning prayer, right? And it says, and now we ask that you would fulfill our desires and petitions as may be best for us, right? So this sense of, yes, God invites us to state the desires of our hearts, he, and he promises to fulfill them, but perhaps not in the way that we would expect, right? Or in the timing that we would expect. So all of that is there to, to suggest, yes, it's relational. Bring your petitions, your desires for me. He longs to hear them. At the same time, know that, he, that his, in his, the execution of his plan, they'll be fulfilled in the way that conforms to that plan and as is best for us as his people. I hear that. But there are times when I pray the desires of my heart where I stop because I know I'm trying to force God to do what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he knows that as well, of course, right? I mean, and, and that's, that's the, the glory of Christianity is the forgiveness that we have that, that allows us to approach the Holy of Holies, right? Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a great point, and I think it's absolutely right what you said. So just, again, to restate it, um, that the, the question is, is it fair to say that these false religions are also impersonal, whereas, whereas Israel's religion is ethical and personal? And I think that's absolutely right, uh, that what is being commended in an impersonal religion is the sense that we know that this is powerful. There's a force here that's powerful, and we have to reckon with it, and we have to propitiate it, right, so that it will give us what we want. You know, that manipulative transactional element to these false religions is actually also carried over in our own religion. Like, what's our religion in America? Consumerism. It's consumerism, right? I mean, it's absolutely. We are fundamentally beholden to money and to possessions. It's absolutely a religion. And, and, and money and possessions are false gods precisely because our relationships with them are impersonal and transactional. Okay? So whereas... Like, our faith demands ethical sacrifice uh, and a personal relationship with God and a communal relationship. It's not just individual. It's us as a body offering sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. It's both and, right? Um, and so, so, yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely wonderful point. Okay, um, so what does true religion require? True religion actually requires not animal sacrifice, but a sacrifice of oneself. So why is that? Why is that? Why is it that it requires a sacrifice of oneself? Because God is holy, and God's intention from the beginning has been to dwell with his creation. What God has always desired is for his entire creation to be his temple that is flooded with his presence. He desires intimacy with his people and with the entirety of his creation. And we actually know this if we read the original creation accounts in the context of the ancient Near East. The creation of the cosmos in Genesis 1 is designed to demonstrate that the creation is his temple, which God indwells. God is sovereign over all, and he has no rivals, so there's no conflict in Genesis 1 as he creates everything. And what he creates is a temple for himself. All ancient temples have three parts, okay? Get this, get this. All temples have three parts, an outer court, 
an inner court and an inner sanctum or holy of holies. Okay? And there's a kind of graded holiness as you go from one place to the other, right? The outer court to the inner court to the inner sanctum. Okay? So fewer and fewer people get to go into those, those, those uh, pathways um, until, you know, in the, in the final inner sanctum, there's only one person who can go in there, right? And so temples are also always meant to be microcosms of the created order. And Israel's tabernacle and temple have this pattern. The outer court represents the cosmos, the uninhabited heavens. The inner court represents the inhabited zones of the earth, the earth and the sea and the sky. And the inner sanctum represents God's presence dispersed throughout the whole creation and intensively present in the inner sanctum. And so the same pattern that we see in the creation, this is actually the same pattern that we see in the creation of the heavens and the earth. There's the tiers of the creation that are constructed and then filled, okay? There's first the container, the heavens and the earth that are made. And then there's a differentiation between sky and sea. And then the land is created out of the sea, okay? And then it begins to be filled. The land is filled with vegetation. The sky is filled with the lights of the sky, the greater light and the lesser light. The waters are filled with creatures. The sky is filled with creatures. And the land is filled with animals. And then lastly, mankind is made as, in this, as the steward of all, God's, of, of all God's creatures and made in God's image. So this isn't actually a cosmology, a story about how all this stuff came into existence. It's rather a story of how God creates a temple for himself with which he will dwell with all of his creation. Okay? It's a statement of his great love for that creation as he makes it and his intention to indwell it, right? So that's that intimacy which indicates that the sacrifice that we're meant to offer is ourselves because the sacrifice is the, the unbuttoning of our, of our hearts to God, right? The opening of our hearts to that intimacy. That's the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. So in chapter 2, the narration turns and describes the sanctuary of the temple, right? I said, remember, all the temples have an outer court, an inner court, and an inner sanctum, right? The outer court represents the uninhabited creation. That's the, the sort of container that's, that's made to, to fill, to, to, for all things to be filled. Then there is the inhabited zones of the creation, right, which is filled. And then there is the inner sanctum, where God's presence dwells most intensively. That's the same pattern. Chapter 2 describes the sanctuary of that temple. And what's the sanctuary if this is the temple? What's the sanctuary? Where are the priests set? What does chapter 2 describe? Come on, y'all. What is created in chapter 2 of Genesis? No, no, that's, well, you know, I mean, at the end, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, then God created humankind in his image. But what, where do they live? Where do they initially? Eden, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I must have not been very clear. Um, yes, so the sanctuary where God's presence most intensively dwells is Eden, okay? Um, so Adam and Eve are created as the stewards of this garden, priests in the temple, right? Uh, and they're made in God's image, which remember is a vocation rather than a set of attributes. And that vocation that they're given is to be priests. The trees represent a sacred grove where sacrifice is offered. I'll have more to say about that in just a minute. Um, because we need to understand, actually, first, first and foremost, what is a priest in Scripture? Okay? Is anybody following me so far? I feel like I may, I may have like, left some of you behind. I'm with you. You're with me. Okay, good, good. All right. Good. Of what? The book? No. Chapter 2 of Genesis. Chapter 2 of Genesis. Okay. All right. Now we're back. Good. So Adam and Eve were, were set in the sanctuary, the inner sanctum of the temple, which is Eden, right? And they were set there in order to be high priests of the creation, in order to, to offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving on behalf of the creation. Okay. So what is a priest in Scripture? How do we know what the priestly attributes are? 
I think, you know, the, the Exodus through Numbers really gives us a sense of what that means. So I would urge you, you know, to go through, look at those, look at those books with this lens. What is a priest, okay? I think if you, if you look through those books, the word that best sums up the meaning of priesthood is mediation. The priest is the representative of the people of God, mediating between God and the people in sacred space. So first we've got to understand, what does it mean that the priest is a representative? The priest is drawn from among the people of God. And this is actually why later generations came to understand Adam and Eve not just as the beginning of everything human, but also as the representative of everything human. They're representatives. They were priests. Exodus tells us that among the tribes of the people of Israel, it is the Levites drawn from among the people that are consecrated to priestly service. Um, all alone among the Israelites, they do not inherit land. Uh, rather, all the other tribes are to support them. And among every tribe, the firstborn of every family must be redeemed, right? So if you're in a family in Israel, your firstborn has to be redeemed. And the way that's typically done is through sacrifice, right? You sacrifice an animal. But it could also be done by consecrating one's firstborn to the Lord's service among the, among the, uh, the Levites, okay? So every tribe could actually participate in the priestly structure of Israel by offering its firstborn to, or firstborns to the service of the temple or the tabernacle. Make sense so far? Okay. So now, not all, the, not all the Levites were priests. Among the Levites, it was Aaron and his sons who were the priests, and the other Levites were servants to the temple. So notice in chapter 1 of Leviticus, you might, if you go read that chapter, it continually says, Aaron and his sons shall do all these things with the offerings that the Israelites, that the Israelites offer. Aaron was understood to be the high priest or the chief priest, and his sons were priests under him. And Aaron's successor was to be his eldest son from among the, you know, the, the lineage of Aaron. So priests were drawn from among the people of Israel, and they kind of sum up, mediate between Israel and the Lord. And they do this in tangible and very visible ways. So to give you just one example, when ministering in the tabernacle, the priest wore the breastplate of judgment. Remember the breastplate of judgment? I don't think it's an, uh, I think it's an, an accident that Paul describes when he's talking about the armor of God, right? the breastplate of righteousness, right? I mean, it's a reference back to the temple, right? But the priest wore the breastplate of judgment or the breastpiece of making decisions, okay? That's actually another way it should be translated. Um, this is an article of cunning work, the text says. It's used for discernment of the Lord's will. And it has, it's, an amazing, it's just an amazing piece of work. It has 12 precious stones that are woven into it, each representing a tribe of Israel. And it also contains these mysterious devices for the discernment of the Lord's will called the Urim and the Thunim. Okay? And he, the, the priest, the high priest, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, wears it over his chest. It's, he, it's to be worn over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. The 12 stones were always over Aaron's heart whenever he entered the holy place so that he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial to the Lord. The Lord will remember Israel in the decision-making that happens, in the discernment of the Lord's will as Aaron comes before him in this mediatory capacity. Follow me? Okay. So the priest mediates between the people and God in sacred space. The critical thing to understand, again, is that the tabernacle parallels the creation. It's meant to be a microcosm of the creation. Remember, I just explained that for the three parts, okay? Um, and and it's, it's really interesting. Also, the priest's clothing is a microcosm of the, of the tabernacle and the temple, and therefore also a temple in miniature, a miniature, okay? So the tabernacle or the temple is itself a microcosm, and then the priest's garments are themselves microcosms of the creation, 
It's not the time for details at all, but just think about, you know, what is on the priestly garments, right? There's the breast piece of decision, which has the 12 tribes inscribed into it. But also the, the, the thing is adorned, his, his, his um, robes are adorned with pomegranates, right? Um, and the, this, the, these, all these designs that, that kind of re- remind us of the structure of the creation itself. And the outer court of the tabernacle where the, where the burnt offerings take place and the, and the, in, the internal structure of the, of the uh, interior courts all kind of draw to mind the images of the creation, right? I mean, the lampstand itself is meant to remind us of the tree of life, right? It has all these branches that go off, and each of them have cups that are like flowers that are flowering off of the tree of life. So there's all this gorgeous imagery, right? So, I mean, go through and read the descriptions of the tabernacle in, in Exodus with that lens in mind, right? How is this meant to remind us of the, uh, of the creation itself, but also, in particular, the garden, okay? Um, all right, so, um, all right, so this is, the priest is, is a representative of Israel that mediates between the people and God in sacred space, okay? It's a critical thing. All right, so what about the sacrifices? Why are sacrifices of animals offered, okay? So, you know, of course, in, in Leviticus, uh, stay with chapter 1, it says in verse 4, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. And then in verse 5 it says, you are to slaughter, slaughter the young bull before the Lord. So the Israelites, you know, are, have a mediation between themselves and God through the priests, but also through the animals. They're involved in the sacrifice, right? You are to lay your hand on the offering. You are to slaughter the animal. And then the offering is to be taken to the, to the, uh, the brazen altar, and, you know, the, the, the blood is sloshed on the sides of the altar, and the, the uh, sacrifice is burned on the altar, and its smoke rises to heaven like the prayers of the people, right? Um, so the Israelites are themselves involved in a priestly ministry, right? They are themselves called a kingdom of priests, and they have priests drawn from among them as representatives. But why are they involved? Because I think the reason is they were not actually meant to sacrifice animals to God in the beginning. They were supposed to present themselves as living sacrifices to God. So whenever the vocation of Israel is stated in its priestly vocation, it's stated God does not desire sacrifice. He, desire, he desires obedience, right? He desires mercy and justice. That's what he desires of you. But because you're not capable of that, because of ongoing sinfulness, you need atonement in order to come in the presence of God. You cannot stand in the presence of God because of sin. To do so would be to die, right? So what was permitted instead is to substitute an animal in one's place. And to do so is actually an act of confession. I am not able to stand in the presence of God. That act of laying one's hand on the offering, right, it's an act of solidarity with the animal, saying whatever is going to happen to this animal is actually what I deserve and what would happen to me were I to come into the presence of God. And it's the representatives, the priestly representatives, Aaron and his sons, who arrange the animal parts on the altar and burn them. Again, that kind of mediation, suggestion that mediation is necessary. And then Aaron and his sons take the blood from the animal, and, and it says the life is in the blood later in Leviticus, right? They splash it on the sides of the altar as if to symbolize this is what is owed, okay? All right, so how does this, all this relate to Jesus? How does Jesus' priestly ministry re- reflected in this kind of temple and priestly mediation? So first we have to say that Aaron points forward to Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest, just as Aaron is a high priest. He is a representative drawn from Israel. But Israel was always itself also a representative people. They were the elect representatives of all nations. And therefore, Jesus, in representing Israel, also represents the nations. He is the one mediator between God and humanity. And he he ever lives to intercede and to mediate uh, with God for his people. And he gives the good things of God to his people. 
But his high priesthood is also greater than Aaron's, right? Aaron's priesthood points forward to Jesus, but it's incomplete, right? It's partial. Aaron's priesthood was a failure in a great many ways. I mean, Aaron immediately, after he's anointed for this task, stumbles in the incident with a golden calf. You know, and then his sons are casual in their administration of the sacrifice. They offer strange fire before the Lord, and for that they're killed. Remember? So then it says, even though Aaron's priesthood is established forever, it comes to an end. It's canceled. It's cut off. In 1 Samuel 2 and 3, it says his priesthood is cut off because of the corruption of the sons of Eli. And in the time of the prophets, the priests joined the other leaders of Israel in their failure to teach the statutes of the Lord of the people of God. They began to treat the worship of God as though it were sympathetic magic, right? They began to tell lies instead of the truth. They began to encourage the people in a form of magic rather than natural law. And Jesus finds himself in conflict with the priestly authorities in the second temple. But Jesus' priesthood, unlike that of Aaron, is perfect, which is why when we're looking for a priesthood superior to that of Aaron's, the book of Hebrews says that he is a priest forever in the order of what? Melchizedek. Okay? Aaron remains the pattern, however, through which we understand the priestly mediation of Jesus. Jesus is greater than the priesthood of Aaron, and really Jesus is greater is the theme of the entire New Testament. The patterns through which we understand Jesus are the patterns given by the Old Testament. But Jesus is always greater than the patterns. He's not only the great high priest, he's also the perfect sacrifice, right? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, right? Christ, our Passover lamb, is now sacrificed for us. The people of Israel approach God through the substitute of the sacrifice, and we approach God through our substitute, who is Jesus, Jesus took on our humanity and he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to God, the perfect lamb that was offered on behalf of our sins. And we have relationship with the Father through his mediation. Jesus is not just the priest and the sacrifice, moreover, he's also the temple itself. In John's gospel, when Jesus cleanses the temple, the authorities ask, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was what? His body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Paul's favorite metaphor for the church is the body of Christ, and it allows him to make all sorts of audacious claims about the church. Because the things that are true of Christ for Paul are also true of us, which are his body, because we are in Christ. We are united to Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. We've been united to him in his death and resurrection in our baptism. Therefore, Christ, therefore Paul says, we are also seated with him in the heavenly places already. Augustine said, it's not, it's, it's not just necessary to speak of Christ himself, but to speak of the whole Christ, the totus Christus in Latin, the head and the members. Whenever we speak of Christ, we should also be speaking of the church. Whatever is true of the head is also true of the members because they participate in the life of the head. So therefore, Paul can also speak of the body of the church as the temple, both corporately and individually. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives 
by his spirit. The body of Christ as a whole is the temple. But hey, also we individually as members of that body are temples. Paul says our actual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says the exact same thing. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is a religion, a true religion. We offer sacrifices. We are priests. We are worshiping and mediating in sacred space, right? In Christ, insofar as we are in Christ. It's always that critical piece. What is the whole Christ? It is, the, it is Christ and his church. And his church is that body which faithfully remains in Christ, right? Remains connected to the vine, as he says in John chapter 14. I forget which, which, actual, which actual chapter it is. So Christ is the creator of all that is. In him all things hold together. And he is also the holy of holies, the sacred space where the presence of God is most concentrated. So every time we come to the table of the Lord, we participate in the once-for-all sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf. We experience his priestly intercession. We enter into the sacred space of the temple. And through that communion, we are ourselves renewed in that union with him so that we too can become the sacred space, that we too can become the priests. So we don't come to the altar lightly. We don't come irreverently. We come knowing that in Christ, we have a, we have a great high priest, a greater Aaron who forever lives as our mediator, our pathway to God and his pathway to us. All right, uh, can I move on? Second theme? Okay, all right. So the second lens that I want to say is like, okay, so that's the first lens, right? Read through the Old Testament, read through it with the lens of the temple, right? That's one of the plot lines, one of the plot devices that we want to read the Old Testament with. Here's the second one. Home, okay? How long have I been talking? Okay, so from the beginning to the end, the scriptures can also be read as a story about home, so Craig Bartholomew is one of the co-authors of the book that we're reading, Drama of Scripture, has a book called Where Mortals Dwell. I think I probably mentioned it to some of you before. But he says in that book that the Scriptures are a home story, a story of emplacement being put in place, displacement, and re-emplacement. That's one of the ways of talking about the drama, right? An original integrity of the creation where we are emplaced. Then the fall where we are displaced, and then a re-emplacement, right? And that's a cycle that goes all the way throughout the scriptures. God is a homemaker, and he creates the conditions of home for his people. And I want to say, this is actually what God's kingship is about. When God is described as a king, it's because he's about the creation of a place that can be home for his creation. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. I said in the last session, it's remarkable how often God's care for birds is mentioned in Scripture, right? It's just almost, it's like a constant refrain. And the desertion of birds from a place is evidence of God's judgment upon it, right? There's this passage in Jeremiah where it's described as, you know, the, the birds have left this place because the judgment of God has come upon it. And God's kingship is about the creation of the conditions of home for his creation, he sets Adam and Eve in a place of flourishing, in a place where they can till the soil, where they can tend the animals, and create culture, actually. The word culture comes from the very idea of soil, right? The cultivation of the soil. So to continue in that flourishing requires a life of wisdom, right? It requires living in a way that goes with the grain rather than against the grain of the creation. And a life of wisdom, according to Scripture, is a life that's conformed to the statutes, the commandments of God. 
So the kingship of God is about the creation of the conditions of home and the setting out of the statutes that enable a life of wisdom. Psalm 93, of course, declares the eternal kingship of God. God is king. He is robed in majesty. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. And it concludes this way. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. His kingship is connected to the statutes, and the statutes are in turn connected with wisdom. And wisdom, again, is in turn connected with flourishing. Okay? So rebellion against these statutes is rebellion against the king, who is the architect of our flourishing. It is foolishness because it is opposed to our true flourishing, which can only be found in conformity to the wisdom of God. And I think this point is super critical to stress because in modernity we've lost the ability to understand the connection between obedience to a precept and human flourishing. And I think that's because we don't have a sense of what people are for. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre, who I think is the most important moral philosopher of our generation, has drawn attention to the fact that these two things not only go together, like obedience to a precept and, and flourishing, but actually have to. What's good for human beings to do is not something that every individual comes up with for themselves, but it's something that takes shape for persons living together in community under the guidance of precept. So remember I said in the first week that every community has a story that gives us a sense of what it is good to do and to be. And that this story tells us what our telos is, what our goal of our life is, and what we should put all of our efforts toward accomplishing. So to flourish in every story about what the good is involves denying some desires that we have, to exercise mastery over them, so we can give ourselves to deeper desires, desires that correspond to that good that we imagine for ourselves. Okay? And the only question about that good is whether or not it's actually truly a good, or whether it's a false vision of the good. Okay, do you remember all that from the first week? Um, so in, in the case of Israel, uh, to deny the lesser desires we have is so that we can say yes to the desires that correspond to the goodness of God's purposes for us. And that's why I think that self-discipline is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? It's listed there, and it's listed last, which I also think is important, right? It's listed last so that we can give ourselves to the rest of those fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. These are actually virtues that we must practice, we must put on so that we can do what God wants for us to do, so we can live in a way that's in accordance with wisdom and flourishing. So McIntyre says, that, says this about the, the coalescence between obedience to a precept and wisdom. He says, Imagine a community who have come to recognize that there is a good for man and that this good is such that it can only be achieved in and through the life of a community constituted by a shared project. Okay? So a community has a good that it envisions and it's a shared project that we're all oriented towards. It's a common good, right? That's where that expression comes from. And we can envision such a community as requiring two distinct types of precept to be observed in order to ensure the requisite kind of order in its common life. Positive precepts and negative precepts, right? The first would be a set of precepts enjoining the virtues, those dispositions without the exercise of which the good cannot be achieved, more particularly if the good is a form of life which includes as an essential part the exercise of those virtues. Are you following me with that? Precepts, positive precepts are, are uh, they, they are, um, instruction to put on the virtues that are going to create flourishing within the community by dedicating oneself to the good that that community is about, the common good. The second would be a set of precepts prohibiting those actions destructive of those human relationships which are necessary to a community in which and for which the good is to be achieved and in which and for which the virtues are to be practiced. Man, philosophers can't express themselves concisely, can they? Okay, but you, you get what I'm saying. 
the, the negative precepts are there to stop behaviors that are going to destroy the fabric of that community and the good toward which that community is oriented. Okay? Both sets of precepts, this is the critical point, derive their point, purpose, and justification from the telos, from the goal, from the common good towards which that community is directed. So law is not or should not be an arbitrary stipulation. It's not something random. It's not just something like, that's like arbitrary that's just put forward to the people. But rather, it takes its norm from the telos, the goal, which the community of which we are part believes is constitutive of human flourishing. So whoever is the lawgiver, the one who says, what are these positive and negative precepts, in an ultimate sense, is the king. Okay, now follow me. The Lord is king, says Psalm 93. That confession of the Israelites is always that God is king. Whoever sits on the throne of Israel is merely a vice-regent. Okay? The king is the true king's minister and is accountable to the true king. So when you read these books of history, the kind of sad and terrible history of the rebellion of the kings of Israel, know that the end of that is that these kings were meant to be accountable to the true king and their failure to do so means a judgment will come upon them from the true king. So we have this illusion in modernity that we invent the good for ourselves as individuals. And, this, and so that, what that means is that we are our own sovereigns, right? But this is the purest form of illusion. Our shared community in America is very abstract. It is a community that's been created predominantly through the media, through governmental and educational messaging, and through the influence of vast and abstract multinational corporations. But the good that we aspire to as Americans is nonetheless a broadly shared one, okay? It's a a good that we share as a community. And we have precepts that we follow, positive and negative, that emerge from this broadly shared notion of the good. So the decisions people make about what they think is going to give them happiness, give them a good life, are, you know, unsurprisingly very similar, right? Like, why is it that we hold up, like, expression of sexuality, whatever, whatever you want to do sexually, as the best good that we can pursue, the thing that's most going to give us flourishing? It's because we have a community that broadly shares that that telos as a common goal, okay? So we have precepts, positive and negative, that emerge from this broadly shared notion of the good, and it's true for any community, including for ours. We have a king, and it will, it will not be ourselves. It'll either be God, or in our case, it will be, you know, F-A-A-M-G, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, right? Okay, so back to Scripture. God's kingship is expressed through his precepts, which are given for the sake of the flourishing of the creation. We also see that the consequence of the law of sin that operates in us through rebellion in our hearts is displacement and death, okay? If God sets the conditions of home and by his precepts that homefulness is maintained, rebellion against that is going to result in the consequence of displacement and death. The rejection of wisdom and rebellion comes at the, loss, comes at the cost of the loss of flourishing. And Adam and Eve, you know, at the end of the story, are driven east of Eden and all humanity with them. Life East of Eden is a life in exile. Adam and Eve and everyone who has come after them have lived in a kind of existential exile, even when they're at home, right? There is this longing for our original home, for Eden. The early Christians, this is a really interesting point, not many people know this, but the early Christians always prayed facing east. It's a practice that Christians have all but abandoned, but interestingly, Muslims have retained, okay? The third century theologian Origen said, there is no reason that should ever keep Christians from praying facing east. This is actually, uh, by the way, interestingly, why why in the Gordon Chapel we celebrate the Eucharist facing what's called liturgical east, right? 
Liturgical east is always altar-wise, facing the altar. So even though our sanctuary is not configured that way, that's still east for us, right? But when the celebrant um, celebrates the Eucharistic prayer, we always turn and face like this, right? And it looks like we're facing away from the people. We're not actually doing that. We're facing together with the people in the direction of east. We're facing east in order to pray. Uh, so to describe why the early Christians prayed in this way, the 4th century theologian Gregory of Nyssa says, Therefore we all look to the east during prayer, but few know that we are in search of our original home, paradise, which God planted in the Garden of Eden to the east. All of us are longing for home, the place where we belong. And all of us are dislocated. We're out of joint. We're in exile, right? The Polish philosopher, and it's interesting, this guy was a dialectical materialist. He was a Marxist. Lezek Kolakowski said this. I think it's incredibly um, clear-sighted. Exile is the permanent human condition. We find, though, in Scripture that God has not left humanity in a state of permanent displacement. He means to re-emplace us again. God is a God who makes a home for his people. He's a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. So Psalm 68 says, And he sets the lonely in families, creates the conditions of home. But the rebellious against them, he says, live in a sun-scorched land, live in exile. He is the good king who not only sets the precepts for his people, but he also rides into battle to rescue them, to give them the conditions of home again. The beginning of his plan to rescue creation is the calling of Abraham and Sarah. Now, Sarah's name means queen, right? So, so there's a kind of, again, a kind of vice-regency that is implied with, with Abraham and Sarah, right? They are, they are sub-king and queen. Abraham is called out of his home in Ur and told that his descendants will be what? Like the stars in the sky, right? And they'll be given the land of the Canaanites for their possession. But the promise of Abraham needs to be understood, I think, in its place in the whole redemption story. The nations are all listed in Genesis chapter 10. They're all the inheritance of God. He's claimed them all for himself. The nations cover the whole earth, and God is pursuing reconciliation with all of them in the economy of redemption. And there's this remarkable story, actually, uh, where, where in Genesis chapter 23, where the beginning of this happens, right? The beginning of this kind of calling of the nations back to himself begins to happen. And it's done in its very particular way. A person is called, and then a particular place is called to be the site of the beginnings of God's redemption. So in Genesis chapter 23, Abraham purchases this burial plot purchases this burial plot for Sarah in the land that's promised to him, right? The land that, that's promised to be the beginning of this, of the foundation of redemption. It's, uh, it's, it's purchased in the land of the Hittites, which are a Canaanite tribe. And it's there that the, that the beginning of God's fulfillment of the promise to Abraham begins to take place. So as Sarah dies, we find the elderly couple in Hebron in the land of, of the Canaanites, again, the land of the Hittites, and the negotiations of, of Abraham's buying of the plot are recorded. It's this really interesting kind of like secular transaction. So the Hittites know Abraham, and they obviously revere him. They call him a mighty prince among us. But actually, the, the phrase they use there is a prince of Elohim, a prince of God, right? A son of God. Um, and it's, you know, this is important canonical overtones. Both David and then preeminently Jesus are described in this way. So the kingship is already kind of foreshadowed there. Abraham is nonetheless a stranger and an alien among them. He describes himself that way. He does not belong to the Hittite people. He cannot be at home there. So under Hittite law, it says that, that he would be ineligible to purchase land in their territory. But nonetheless, 
He takes seriously the promise that's been made to him that he will inherit the land, and he asks to purchase the land for the burial plot so that the deed will be given to him, so that the deed will be in his name. Like, he'll actually own land there. And the, the Hittites eventually relent, and they sell it to him for this exorbitant price, right? You want to be a citizen? Fine. 400 shekels of silver. silver. It's a massively overinflated price for this burial plot. But Abraham doesn't count the cost too great to be at home and to find a resting place for his wife and himself that is inside of the land that's given to him and, his, and to his descendants, right? It's this kind of like toehold in the promise. So we see in this passage, I think, two points about home that are utterly critical to the Christian hope. The first one that's a little more muted in the text, but it's nonetheless absolutely indispensable for us to notice about our hope is the importance of embodiment in the, in the hope that's given to us in the land, right? Um, and, and it's expressed in this passage in the care that's given to the bodies of the dead. So, you know, it's well known in this church, because we love Bishop Tom Wright, uh, the Christian hope is not that our souls would go to heaven when we die, but that we would see the Lord face to face in our bodies, our resurrected and purified bodies. When the Bible acknowledges our longing to be at home, it doesn't in any way skirt the embodied character of that hope. The resurrection is an emphatically embodied hope. And so therefore, Christians everywhere and for all time have been in horror of callous treatment of the bodies of our dead. We consecrate our burial places. I mean, think about our, our um, what's it called? Columbarium. columbarium, there we go. Our columbarium in the sanctuary, right? That's a consecrated space for the burial of the dead. We, we celebrate funerals liturgically. We, we take the Eucharist together at our funerals in the sure and unshakable hope that we will see each other again in our bodies, right? St. Augustine worthily says that bodies are not ornaments. The body belongs to the very nature of human beings, we are not souls that have bodies. We are our bodies as much as we are our souls. And therefore, Augustine says, care for the bodies of our dead is an affirmation of our firm belief in the resurrection. And so here for Abraham and Sarah. And we see here in this passage the critical care, uh, the critical nature of our care for the dead. And it's just incredible to me that Sarah's body is treated with such dignity. You know, we couldn't imagine, I don't think, a more misogynistic age than the age of the patriarchs. But here's Sarah being treated as the queen, the queen of all God's people, whose body is treated with profound respect and dignity. And she's paradigmatic of every Christian who has died in the sure hope of the resurrection, because every Christian who has died in the sure hope of the resurrection is also a vice uh, king or queen, just like Abraham and Sarah, right? Friends of God in that way. So for this passage, I think, highlights another critical fact about being human. Abraham was a stranger and an alien among the Hittites, and he only sees the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise, not the fullness of it. Abraham did not possess the land promised to him and his descendants, but he possessed a burial plot there, right? And all of us embody that same posture as Abraham. We're strangers and exiles even when we're at home, like Abraham was in Ur. We're strangers and exiles even as Israel was in the land of promise itself. Because there was no righteousness in the land. We're at home and not at home because the creation is out of joint. And we ourselves are out of joint in the creation. We are the church that sojourns that is on a painful pilgrimage in every place. Peter's first epistle, if you remember, begins that way. The church that's, to the church that sojourns in all these provinces. And he calls the people of God strangers and exiles. Exile is the permanent human condition. All of us know, I think, what it means to pray Psalm 22 with Jesus from the cross. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. 
So the purchase of this burial plot was the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 15, that he would give to him and to his descendants the promised land. That burial plot, which is called the Cave of Machpelah, or the Cave of Patriarchs, is almost an orienting device throughout the rest of Genesis for all the patriarchs. So it's not only Sarah that's buried there. When Abraham dies, he's also buried there in Genesis chapter 25. When Isaac, the son of promise, dies, he's buried there in chapter 35. And then when Jacob's wives, Rebekah and Leah, die, they're buried there in Genesis chapter 49, right? So it's, just not, this, it's not actually an insignificant afterthought that in chapter 50, that Joseph, who has become Egyptian royalty after much travail, makes the request to Pharaoh. He says, I have sworn to bury my father in Canaan. Please let me go do it, even though my people have settled in Goshen and become Egyptians because of the famine, right? I need to go bury my father. I need to leave and go bury my father. In fact, the text mentions in the lead up to that chapter two different times Jacob's request to his son that he be buried in that, in that cave. Jacob ha- uh, Joseph has no idea what this, what this means. He just knows that his father has requested it, right? There's some significance about this inheritance, this patrimony. And so when, uh, when, when uh, Joseph buries his father uh, in that, in that uh, place, he goes with this giant Egyptian entourage, right? Uh, and, and it's, it's like the Egyptians are wailing and, you know, gnashing their teeth. And so the Canaanites notice it, right? And, they, and it says, you know, in that chapter that it became known as the place where the Egyptians mourned, okay? Um, and it's interesting because this, this sort of like memory of home is orienting um, the Israelites and Joseph even kind of implicitly. I mean, Joseph has become an Egyptian. He speaks the Egyptian language. He adopts Egyptian customs. He eats Egyptian food. He wears royal Egyptian garb. He's even called by a different name. He's no longer Joseph, but Pharaoh calls him Zaphoneth Paneah. And he marries an Egyptian woman, Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, who's a priest of the god On. Okay? Does that mean that Joseph becomes an idolater? I think it probably does, right? He loses the plot line, but home is still there, right? It says that, that and actually, Joseph is not even buried there. He he's dies and is buried in Egypt, but he buries Joseph there as a kind of or yeah, uh, Jacob there, as a memory of what home is. And yet he honors you know, the ongoing work of God in the place. What time is it? Okay, 1035. Um, I'm not going to finish, so we'll continue on next week with this and then go on to the next thing too. Um, all right, so his massive Egyptian entourage does this obeisance to the work of God by wailing for Jacob at the tomb, right? And it continues on into, into Exodus. This promise that was given to Abraham is not fulfilled for hundreds of years until Israel has become destitute and enslaved and has suffered deeply and all but forgotten the dim memory that they were anything other than slaves in Egypt. But the exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the entry into the land of promise are are neither the beginning of the story nor its end, right? Um, It's the middle of the story. It is, the, it is the summary of a, of a, it is a climax of an initial cycle of that story of homefulness, but it's not the end of that story. And that's because, actually, when God begins his work of rescue, when he begins to exercise his kingship, his intention is to restore the fullness of the original promise. And what's the original promise that's given to Adam and Eve? Do you remember? To, well, to Adam and Eve. It's to be fruitful... And to multiply into what? Fill the whole earth, right? It's not just the land of promise. It's the whole earth that's meant to be rescued and redeemed. So the promise of the land was given with the call that Israel might be a holy people living in a holy land, a beachhead, as it were, of God's redemptive work to the nations. 
But uh, the, the point was that they might attract the nations by showing what a people that's consecrated to God might look like. But Israel never rose to this vocation, and from its inception as a nation, it failed in the idolatry of the golden calf. And there's this sad history of idolatry and adultery and murder that fills the pages of the books of history, and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, all the way to the end. And it makes for this grim reading of the history of Israel's rebellion against God's kingship. And so the prophets come to warn Israel about the consequences of this rebellion, which is actually that the land will vomit them out. They'll be, they'll be sent into exile. This is already one of the promises given to Israel in the covenant with God. Leviticus 18.28 says, If you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And the prophets promise that when that happens, the true king will come among the people to rule them not with the lash, but, but by writing the law upon their hearts, as Jeremiah says. So when Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the prowess, for they will inherit the earth, he's restating the original promise that was given to Adam and saying it is fulfilled through Jesus' kingship. All right, I said, blessed are the prowess. Probably don't know what that means, right? The word prowess has been translated as meek throughout the history of the tradition, right? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But see, the word meek has come in our late modern age to mean the exact opposite of what it means in Scripture, right? What it means to be weak now means to be weak. You're meek, you're weak, you're diffident, um, but, but actually, in Scripture, what it means to be meek is that the law of God is written on your heart, right? That you love the things that God loves, that you desire the things that God loves, that you live in wisdom, right? You've chosen life, right? That's what it means to be prowess. That's what it means to be weak. It means that the lust to dominate others has been subdued in you so that you may rule the earth as the servant of others. True vice kingship in, in submission to the true king in the service of his people, Right? And Paul says, this is why we're not permitted to bring lawsuits against one another in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you know you'll judge angels? You can't even settle these little disputes among yourselves. Why not rather be defrauded, you who will inherit everything? We will rule if indeed we are meek, if indeed the lust to dominate is pacified within us as those who are in submission to the true king and in service to others. So this beatitude is actually a statement about what power and authority look like in the kingdom of God, not a commendation of diffidence or weakness. So after all, those who inherit the earth will rule the earth, actually. But they'll rule it like Adam and Eve were meant to, as vice regents, not as the sons of men do in this evil age. And Jesus says the same thing in a different way to his disciples later in Matthew 20. You will sit on the thrones of Israel and judge the earth. That's his claim to the apostles. But he says, don't be like the Gentiles in this regard. Because the Gentile rulers lord it over their subjects. They are enslaved by a sinful passion to dominate others. But whoever wants to be great among you must what? Be a servant of all. Yes. Whoever would inherit the earth and rule it must in this life become someone in whom the sinful craving to dominate others has been healed. For us, those, those who are the ones who worship the second Adam are also called to be stewards along with him, that we might be made whole again, that we might be brought home again, that we might live in subservience and submission to the true king who has come among us in the person of Jesus, right? Okay, I, in the last little bit, I have this excursus, you know, kind of a brief aside on the, uh, the, the taking of the promised land because I, I figured that was like one of the questions that's going to be there in the background. Is that fair? Fair to say? Y'all concerned about the promise? Uh, yeah? Yes, please, please ask questions. I, I, I follow your, your train of thought when you, when you read from 
Oh yeah, can I can I go through this excursus? Because I will answer that question. Um, it, great question, by the way. Let me restate it real quick. The question is: Okay, how do you square you know wisdom leading to flourishing with Jesus's Jesus's uh, declaration to his people that if you follow him, you'll bear a cross? Yeah. Okay. All right. So let me just start here. I'll get to that point, but let me let me do the kind of background first. So there's this consistent objection against the Bible that's raised that I think it just needs a few minutes to clarify, which is like, how do we understand the taking of the promised land? Okay, so I think there's three points to keep in mind about this, three, um, three kind of beginnings of an answer to the objections uh, that, that arise in our, our hearts and in kind of our, our culture about the taking of the promised land. So you know, the, the, the objectionable command, I think, is the, the ban, the harem, right, that's, that's commanded. Put everything to the sword, okay? Everyone and everything to the sword. Um, how do we make sense of these, you know, drastic marching orders? Okay, the first point I think to keep in mind is that when that command is given, it is against the cities of the Canaanite lands. Um, and the important thing to note here is that people in this, in this time period, in that place, did not live in the cities. Cities are military strongholds, okay? Th- this has been proved by archaeological remains, actually. They're military strongholds, not civilian population centers. So if we say the word city today, you know, most of us think about urban centers that are flooded with civilians. You know, like uh, there's a guy named uh, Joshua Ryan Butler who's written, I think, probably the best exposition of, of what this, um, of how to understand uh, the, the, the invasion of the promised land uh, called The Skeletons in God's Closet. So I'd highly recommend a kind of a deep read of that, of that book. And he says, I live in the heart of Portland, a modern metropolitan city. When I walk outside my front door, I see houses and restaurants and businesses and hospitals and schools. It is thus not surprising that when I come across Israel taking out a city like Jericho, the first image that comes to mind is a civilian population center. But in the ancient Middle East, things were different. The Old Testament word for city would have to Israel's ears conjured up images of a fortified military garrison. And this is why when you read about the, take, the taking of, of Jericho, the Israelites can march around it seven times in one day and still have time to fight, right? It's, it is a garrison. Um, so cities were frequently these military outposts that defended the roads leading up to where the civilian centers actually were. So he says, think about the Great Wall of China as a military defense against invasion. That's how these cities were, Jericho and Ai uh, in particular, which, is the, which are the central cities that had the focus in Joshua. And, in Joshua. So this is, this is where the soldiers were, not where the people lived. Women, children, and other civilians were in the towns and villages in the surrounding countryside looking to these cities for military protection. So Jericho was only six acres, actually, in, in uh, circumference. Um, Richard, Richard Hest, who's an Old Testament scholar, has, has argued, I think, really persuasively that Jericho and I would only have held about 100 or 150 soldiers each. So Jericho was really more like the first line of defense. It was a fort guarding the travel routes up into Jerusalem, Bethel, and Ophrah. The civilian populations lived in the villages and towns up in the hills. And we constantly read that the Canaanites are still there, Right? If you, if you read Joshua and Judges, the Canaanites are very much still in the land when Israel has driven out the people that they were meant to drive out. Okay, so that's the first point to remember about the, the, the ban. And the second observation is that many scholars have observed that Joshua, in his rhetoric, uses, or in the rhetoric of the author, uses a convention from the ancient Near East, which is that of overinflated military rhetoric. 
Okay? Joshua says, Israel utterly destroyed Canaan's army, or that they showed no mercy and did not spare anyone that breathed. But even within that same passage, when you read it, it says, this is not an accurate description of events. It's very clear. Some of Canaan's soldiers realize that the battle has been decided and they flee the battlefield in order to survive. And Joshua's armies are clearly not fighting villagers or civilians in towns and villages. They're fighting soldiers with fortified military outposts and on a battlefield. When Joshua describes wholesale slaughter then, we ought to understand it as him saying something like, we mop the floor with them, right? Their, their army could not stand before us. These are military victories. They are not genocidal civilian massacres. So this is what Butler says. After the Joshua passage, every time this exaggerated war rhetoric shows up, and again, the times are very few, the same thing happens. All we have to do is to go a little further in the story, and we see that the same enemies are still running amok. All we have to do is zoom out from the specific verse to the surrounding context in the broader story. So I've said this several times in like different sermons, that in order to defamiliarize the text to us, we have to actually read intensively, and we have to read extensively. Extensive reading repays dividends when you're reading Joshua, right? Because you suddenly realize like, what is being said is actually overinflated military rhetoric. If you look down just a little bit further in the same passage, it becomes clear that it's not a wholesale slaughter, and it's a slaughter of, and to the extent that it is a slaughter, it's a slaughter of soldiers. It's a battlefield uh, rather than civilians or uh, non-combatants. So the last observation that I think can help, the, the, the language that's used in relationship to the taking of the promised land is not primarily the ban. The Canaanites are driven out, not killed off. The phrase drive out shows up more than 50 times in the Old Testament, whereas harem, the ban, shows up only in a few places. So as Butler points out, being driven out is the language of eviction, not murder. And like a rowdy dancer bounced from a club, if you're driven out, the good news is you're still alive. So God is like a gardener actually chasing out the hooligans who have been trashing his vineyard, or like a landlord evicting the unruly tenants who have been destroying his home. Or like an angry prophet with a whip driving out the mighty merchants out of his temple. All these driving out images are language in the Bible, by the way. Right? God drives out the unruly, powerful tenants out of his garden home and gives it to the last and the least, the homeless slaves who have had the boot of the empire on their necks for far too long. So let me just pause on that point for a minute because it's critical, right? The question of perspective in the Bible is absolutely essential to understanding what's going on in the promised land. How do we understand who Israel is in these passages? I think we have been trained to see Israel like a colonial power coming into a developing nation and, engage, and engaging in a genocidal massacre. And to our shame, in the Christendom of the past five centuries, that's exactly how this text has been used, right? It was used to support the pestilential projects of the great colonial European powers, to enslave and to pilfer the native populations of the New World, right? It was used in the 19th century to support manifest destiny, and the displacement of native populations. This is wickedness. It's an absolute perversion of the text. Why is that? Why is it a perversion? Because it wasn't its original context. And this is critical if we're serious about understanding the justice of God. In its original context, Israel is homeless slaves. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years after hundreds of years of impoverishment and enslavement in Egypt. This is a weak people taking the field against a much more powerful army. Remember, what are they actually conquering? Military garrisons, well-armed military garrisons. Joshua has to say, hey, don't be afraid when they come out with chariots reinforced with iron. This is a powerful, wealthy, uh, extraordinarily bellicose people. So this could only happen by the will and power of God. So Butler says this, if Canaan is getting the boot, sorry, yeah, if Canaan is getting the boot, then God is the foot. 
Deuteronomy 11.23 says this, The Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Okay? Israel is not powerful colonial power coming in and displacing people. It is a weak people that are coming into the land that is theirs by inheritance and promise. Okay, but what about the Canaanites? Does God only care about his people and not them? That's definitely not the case. And here's why. When God makes the promise to Abraham that his descendants will possess the land, he tells them, guess what? You're going to have to wait. And he doesn't just say, you're going to have to wait. He says, you're going to have to suffer before you come into, your, before you come into the land that's yours by inheritance. He says, know for certain, this is in chapter 15 of Genesis, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country that's not their own. That is Egypt. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Why? In the fourth generation, that is, in 400 years, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That is, the Canaanites have not yet reached its full measure. So 400 years is a really, really long time. Really long time. God is telling Abraham that his grandkids and his great, 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 Great grandkids are going to be in exile and slavery in Egypt and then enslaved and mistreated in Egypt for 400 years because he's being patient with the Canaanites and their sinfulness. 400 years is a very long time. It's longer than our nation has existed. God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, as 2 Peter 3 says. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So as Butler puts it, we, we misunderstand holy war if we think God is just out looking to pick a fight. God is not running around trashing mighty empires every day. He is patient because he wills that all men be saved. We don't, we don't know how God revealed himself to the Canaanite people during this 400 years. But here's what we know on the basis of his character. He did not leave himself without a witness there. Any Canaanite who wanted to turn to the living God did so. And how do we know? Because some did. Think about Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have showed kindness to you. And this woman, you know, Joshua chapter 6 says, she intermarries into Israel and is grafted in so that she, she becomes even part of the genealogy of Jesus, according to Matthew. So here's one more critical point that I think we need to look at. What about the suffering of Israel and Egypt for these 400 years? How is it consistent with God's justice? Because I don't know about you, but I think I could endure just about anything except the suffering of my own children. You know? I mean, my own suffering pales in comparison. I don't even care, but I care a lot about the suffering of my kids. And the biblical answer is always the same. God is patient, not wanting anyone to be lost, but for everyone to repent. And the elect people of God are always called to suffer with him. So to live wisely is simultaneously to be called into flourishing, into an inheritance, to homefulness, and to be called into suffering. Patient endurance until the time has arrived. Okay? We need to see our own suffering in relation to the story of Abraham. Why do you wait so long, O Lord? Because the Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. To be elected of God means to be elected to suffer. 
Paul says this, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's a conditional statement. The elect people of God will suffer. You want to follow Jesus? Take up your cross and follow him. The elect people of God, therefore, are taught very early on how to lament, how to cry out, How long, O Lord? Habakkuk 1-2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Psalm 35, 17. O Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my life from their ravages, my precious life. Acknowledging my precious life. I am your heir. My precious life from these lines. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? What's that from? Revelation 6.10. That's New Testament. Lament, right there in the heart of the victory of Christ being proclaimed, you know. God's kingship is both merciful and just. He is patient with the tyrants of this world, and he endures even the tyrants that we do not see, sin, death, and the devil, because he is patient. Christ is not only the king who has given us true precepts, he is the king who has ridden out in battle for our hearts. He has won the decisive victory against the tyrants of this world through his cross and resurrection. And we see in Revelation 19 that he will write out once more a just and conquering king whose name is Faithful and True from whom all the evil in this world and the evil in our hearts will flee in terror. And therefore, he will also restore all that we have lost. He will re-emplace us. He will bring us out of exile. He will bring us home. But in the interval, however long it lasts, to be the elect means that we are not simply biding time. We are also co-sufferers together with Christ so that we may be co-heirs together with him. The resurrection is our hope. And it is a powerful hope because it is home. It's embodied. Remember that Augustine quote, bodies are not ornaments. We have a sure and certain hope in an embodied resurrection where God will create the conditions of home. The author of Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It's a true place. It's a true home. It's embodied. So therefore, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. In the heavenly Jerusalem, we will no longer be displaced, but at home. And there are moments in this life, there are moments in this life where we get foretastes of that, reminders of the hope that we have. But they're passing, they're transient, they're ephemeral. We can't put our hope in them. They won't bear the weight of our longings. Our longings are made not for this earthly city. Here we have no lasting city, but we have an eternal one. We seek the lasting city. So uh, I'll stop there because we only have five minutes. But if there are questions, I'll, I'll you know, entertain them now. Yeah. Um, I, comments, too. How your uh, instructions on like, the comments on the list are helpful. My one question I have, though, is so there are places where it says, like, go in and kill all the women and children that yeah. are there. If these are military garrisons, why would that even be brought up? Like, yeah. like if there aren't many women, And, and livestock. Everything set to demand. Yeah. Evidently, in these military garrisons, which, which were predominantly soldiers, there would have been maybe potentially wives and or children. 
And that is, you know, I can't, I mean, this, you got to look at that squarely. Yeah. For sure. Definitely prostitutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is just maybe something to think about in the future. But I wonder, again, like this, I appreciate that there are scholars, you know, looking intensively at this, these texts and narratives of the conquest of, of the Canaanites. Um, but I wonder for the Christian today, scholarship to argue that it wasn't just a whole slaughter, but only a 64% slaughter. Mm -hmm. what? I, I, I find that odd that, that Christians, that this would be an important debate to get into for a practicing Christian who I thought we were not supposed to make sense of what our God does, but to obey it. And if this is what happened, that's what happened. God gave this land to certain people, and this is how they conquered it. As a, I, I don't see, if I can respect for scholars doing their work mm -hmm. and better understanding of the word, I, I just don't, I don't see the value It's a, it's a good question. So the, the, I, I think the, the question is, of what value is it to clarify the slaughter? If it happened and it was according to God's will, then that's what happened. And it's not like it's the only right. slaughter or, or mass killing of, of sure. enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're actually... That's so, my question. Yeah, so the, the question, I think, um, there's a couple, a couple of uh, points in response to the question you're asking. Number one, I think... Uh, there are, yeah, of course there are other slaughters that Israel engages in, um, and they are explicitly not commended as in obedience to God's will, right? Like, um, there's, there's, I forget which tribe it is, but uh, they, that one of the members of the tribe uh, um, rapes one of, the, one of the Israelite women. And so, as a kind of, like, trickery, the Israelite tribes uh, say, hey, um, like, become circumcised, you can be part of us, right? And they become circumcised, and while they're resting, you know, healing in a Having done that, they're slaughtered, right, wholesale. It's explicitly not uh, in the commandment of God, right? So, so there is an important distinction between what does Israel do and what does Israel do in following the command of God. Secondly, I think it's important to clarify under what conditions is holy war commended and what is the meaning of holy war and the, the, the specific question about what is actually the command is extraordinarily relevant to our understanding of what are we being commanded to? Like, are we able to take up, you know, the, the, the call of holy war and to displace nations? No, because we're not in the position of Israel. And the position, the perspective of Israel, where they're coming from and what they're commanded to do, are, are integral to our understanding of this text. And then I think... And do you call the conquest of the Canaanites a holy war? Is that that's exactly what it is, yeah. Um, it's, it's holy war that proceeds by the commandment of God. And the holy war in the New Testament is expressly narrated as the conquest of God over the true tyrants over humanity, which is sin, death, and the devil. There is a holy war that's ongoing, but it is a holy war that is spiritual, okay? So this is a type that prefigures what God is doing in cleansing our hearts. So it's extraordinarily critical to understand not just the history, but what does it point forward to? The third, the third thing is, I think, 
really, probably the most important for me personally is that if we are going to declare that God is just, we actually need to be able to see that he is just rather than, you know, uh, arbitrary, inflicting arbitrary violence upon humanity. Like, can we recognize that justice as something that we would want to worship? So I think that that question of harmonization is extraordinarily critical in that respect, right? We don't worship a bare will. We worship a God who has a character, right? And his character is one that's trustworthy. It's chesed, it's patience, it's kindness, it's mercy, also justice to his creation. So I, I think it's important for all those reasons to address the concerns that people raise and the objections that people raise to these texts. And didn't, uh, somewhere, I, I, you don't know what I read, but somewhere in scripture, isn't, didn't God say, I can't give you over to the, the promised land totally if I, if, if I kill, you kill all the people because the land will grow up the wild animals. Yes. You won't really be able to take possession of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So, and I never, never crossed my mind that these were garrisons. Yeah. Well, and it wouldn't, because it's like, when we read city, we expect population center, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this, you can, I mean, it's, it's very, very, like, good reason why you don't, you, why you didn't know that, you know? Yeah. So, anyway. Uh, anyone else? Judy. Yeah. Um, right there, well, when you were talking about Christianity, about the uh, scriptures, which they get, because I, 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 you went through it a little yeah. Well, I was just pointing out, so uh, one of the things that stands out to me, and I think it's, I think it's there as a subtext of that text in Genesis 23, when, when Abraham is negotiating to buy that burial plot, um, that one of the things that stands out is the, is the care and importance given to dead bodies, right? And that remains a central Christian conviction because of our belief that the resurrection is an embodied place. It's actual land that we are meant to take possession of, right? And it's, it is the heavenly Jerusalem. So we have this profound care that we exercise with the bodies of our dead, and I, my point was that, that Augustine makes this point really clearly. That our care for the dead is related intimately to our, our profound hope in the embodied character of the resurrection. Okay, but then Jesus came a-calling one of the apostles, and they, they said, well, let me, let me, let me bury my father. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I've got the dead bury the dead. Yes. You know, I, yeah. I don't quite understand. Yeah. Well, there's an obligation that supersedes the burial of one's father. I mean, the obligation to follow Christ in the intimate circle, right, that that, that that person was asking to be part of would require even that sacrifice, you see? So it's not as though that obligation is set aside. In fact, Jesus says, actually, really clearly in Matthew 5, um, and next time when we talk about Torah or teaching, right, he has not come, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, rather I've come to fulfill them, right? So he's come to reorient the hierarchy of our priorities, okay? Mercy and justice above all, right? And following Christ is, a, is an obligation that supersedes any other potential uh, obligations that we might have. Um, so Jesus can call that person away from that obligation without setting that obligation aside. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any, anyone else? From the sublime to the sure. routine. Yeah. What's the best thing to do to prepare for the next session? Oh, well. Um, well, I mean, obviously the chapter. Um, Yeah, I have one more kind of lens, um, Torah, our teaching, and then, um, then we'll move to Jesus. 
specifically Jesus, right? The, that, that section in the drama. And, you know, I, I mean, honestly, what, what, thanks, thanks, Chris. What I've been doing is, is trying to interweave, you know, um, that how do we read this Christologically? How do we understand this text in relation, as, in, as a whole, right? Rather than just saying, well, here's what happened. You know what I mean? Because actually, I don't think that's as helpful to say, like, well, here's what happened. Because then it's just, like, dead and gone, you know, bar- the buried past. And that's exactly how I don't want you to read Scripture, right? Because uh, that's actually not the way that we're intended to read Scripture. Um, so, yeah, but, but I think, you know, read that chapter um, that lays out, you know, what, what happens with Jesus. But I also think if you want more reading, I can give you more reading. Would you like more reading? Yeah, I'll talk about the interlude as well. Yeah, which is the, you know, the 400 years when, when there's a famine of the Word of God, actually, which Amos says is going to happen. Um, but yeah, the, uh, and there's, there's all kinds of like, like crazy stuff that happens during that time period that gets incorporated in the New Testament, like the new focus on the angelic, right? The angelic is almost like absent in the Old Testament. There's a few mentions, right? Like the leader of the commanders of heaven in, in the beginning of Joshua. It's actually an amazing passage. Joshua, like he, he appears and it's terrifying. Joshua goes, well, which side are you on? Like mine or theirs? And he goes, I'm not on anyone's side, right? Like come as a messenger from the Lord, right? It's a lovely point. God is not on our side. God is not on their side. God is on his own side. And those who want to be on God's side can align with God's purposes. Um, yeah, anyway, but that, there's a couple of mentions, but then the, intensi- the intensification of the discussion of the angelic and the intensification of the discussion of the resurrection gets, gets way more critical during that intertestamental period. So we'll talk about some of that stuff and some of the writings that, that, um, that, that uh, come into being during that time period. Some of those writings... Well, yeah, but I mean, uh, three, three was for today. So hopefully, you know, hopefully you finish that for today. But absolutely, yeah, no, no problem, no problem. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, no, I mean, you're not, you're not uh, anyway. Um, but yeah, so uh, fin- finish uh, the interlude and then chapter four, if you can. And of course, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, not, it's not like a seminar. I'm not like, you know, grading you on your class participation, you know what I mean? So um, it's an invitation rather than a, uh, a requirement. But if you are looking for something else that's amazing to read, I would highly recommend Richard Hayes' Echoes of the Scripture in the Gospels. Amazing book um, that kind of ties together, interweaves all the themes from the Old Testament with the, the different Gospel writers. So, all right, we'll, um, we'll close there. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys.